everybody. Welcome to episode 114 of Literary Disco, a fall bookshelf revisit. On today's episode, we're just going to catch up with a good old-fashioned bookshelf revisit, a segment in which we each pull something down from our shelves and talk about it. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey, guys. Hey! Hey! hey. We haven't seen each other forever. (laughs) That's because you're so famous. I am so incredibly famous. Yeah, so Todd, you've been on the road for like six weeks of book touring? I've been on the road for six weeks, traveling around the country, pimping my uh, new book, Gangster Nation. And I have to say, every single place I went, so I, I visited like 25 cities. And in every single event that I did, even when I did an event in Chicago on Rosh Hashanah, because I'm I'm uh, the worst Jew in the history of Jews. A literary disco listener showed up, um, which was awesome. I told you that they wished you were Julia. Yeah. Yes. The, the overwhelming thing that I heard was, "Please let Julia talk." Um, <laughs> oh, also, there's a lot of uh, apparently people are listening to the old episodes frequently right now, and there's a lot of when is Will coming back. Oh, let's have Will back. He was we great. We totally back. have Will back. We need, yeah, we need to read some sci-fi or fantasy. Yeah. Get him to. So what I said always was, "Oh, Will's coming soon," and the next episode, Julia will be allowed to speak. <laughs> wow! I just want to thank you, everybody, for advocating for me. It's really nice. Well, and what I've also learned is that people don't find me as funny as I find. Me. Is this an epiphany for you? I was going to say, <laughs> hasn't this been the story of your life? A little bit of epiphany. A little bit That's, of epiphany. Okay. Um, but I had I great so. experiences on the road. It was fun meeting everybody. And a lot of them brought me baked goods. Like I said on Literary Disco, hey, bring me baked goods. And motherfuckers brought me baked goods. <laughs> That's awesome. It was great. You're abusing um, your power. Jeez. I am. I am totally abusing my power. And then, uh, for instance, in, um, in the Bay Area, well, this is actually one of my uh, students, but they brought me cookies with... Uh, cookies that had my face on them, and then cookies that also had my book cover on them, hmm. um, and they were quite like, tasty. It was, it was very. How do you do nice. that? Like somebody actually artistically icing, what, or is it like a printing? It's, some sort of. It's a printing thing. Yeah, printing technology. Have you ever gotten a cake with a face on it? No, I feel like or I've like seen a photo. That, yeah, I got one of those too. It was great in Chicago, in fact, on Rosh Hashanah. It was delicious. It was a fondant. <laughs> I have no idea how this works. I'm fascinated. I'm going to go down an internet rabbit hole. Hey, listeners, um, if you could, one of you, make some cookies with Ryder's face on it, preferably the picture of Ryder with the wolf. I want want cookies with the picture of Ryder with the wolf. Oh, yeah, the, like, teen beat photo of me with the wolf. That's what I want. It was a great day, man. I got to meet a wolf and do a photo shoot. Uh, oh, yeah, God. I was definitely old. I was out of the phase where I used to wear wolves on my t-shirts, but not that long out of that phase. Oh. I was really into wolves too. We've probably discussed this, but I was the howling wolf I, I was t-shirts from the mid '90s, man. Never into wolves. Um, can I tell you guys the most amazing thing that happened though on the road, and then we'll yes. talk about our bookshelf revisit? So I was in um, Oregon City, which is just outside of Portland, and I was staying with our good friend Nicole Rosevier. And Nicole and I were knocking around this weird antique store, which is not far from her house. 
And a woman came in with a box and just like dumped it on the counter and left. And so Nicole and I walked over and on this counter in this weird antique and doll shop were a bunch of diaries. And I was like, well, that's weird. And so they had the name of the person on the cover. Her name was Christy Morrison. And then she became Christy Bauman. And she was, was from like age 18 to 25. Every day she wrote in her diary from 1948 to 1954. And she was married to the chief detective of Portland. And I was like, oh, my God. Cool. This is amazing. This sounds like a novel. I know. (laughs) Like you could structure a novel exactly like this. Um, so, um, so it's this woman's diaries from 1948 to 1954, and she wrote in them every single day. And she wanted to be a professional tap dancer, and she's married to a man named uh, Rudolf. Um, who, so she became uh, Christy Bauman after she married Rudolf, and she refers to him as Rudikins throughout her diaries. <laughs> and it's it's they're both mundane and sort of you know unusual because it's like it's her every single day. So it's Woke up early, went to the market, Rudikins had a case, so he wasn't home until late. You know, just sort of stuff like that. But also, um, like, Christmas cards are shoved into these and all kinds of stuff. And it's, at some point, Rudikins gets um, transferred to South Carolina because he's in the Marine Reserve and he's an investigator at um, a base in South Carolina, a Marine investigator, so it's like NCIS type thing. And so there's lots of talk about things that he's investigating out there. And it's just all this, this stuff. The one really unusual thing is that they have a habit of having a cup of coffee before they go to bed. And then the next day, she says, had real trouble sleeping. I was like, well, <laughs> stop drinking fucking Let's coffee before you go to bed. together, lady. <laughs> <laughs> but well, there's a lot of good writer, Todd? Like, she's an amazing writer. Oh, a beautiful so writer. Cool. So... Nicole and I are looking through these things and we're like, oh my God, this is amazing stuff. And then in 1954, and there's all kinds of personal information in here about them. And, you know, she lists on the front page of um, of the diary, she lists, you know, essentially all of her personal information, including her social security number and all kinds of stuff. Her hat size, she was a five and a half shoe. Her hat size was 22. She was hosiery eight and a half. Um, she was in the American Guild of Variety Artists. So at any rate, oh, wow. th- it's all sort of fascinating. And Nicole and I are reading them as we're standing in there. And it's just this whirlwind romance from when she was 18 to when she's 24 and she gets pregnant. But as I'm reading these, I'm beginning to notice sort of a trend with Rudikins, which is Rudikins gets called out a lot late at night to go on a case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then comes back stinking of whiskey. Mm. And I was like, oh, no, Christy. And then, 1954, in May, hold on. I'm flipping through in May of 1954 and shoved into May of 19, May 14th, 1954. I'm going to hold this up for you guys to see. Is a slip of paper. And it says, a turning point. Whoa. What? And on that day, Rudikins showed up at 4.05 in the morning, stinking of whiskey. And she wasn't having it anymore. 
And so when he passed out drunk on the bed, she reached into his pocket, but he bolted upright. But she'd already found what she was looking for, and it was a key. It was a key to room 390 at the Multnomah Hotel, which is now an embassy suites. Romantic. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, she actually bookmarked yeah, a, turning a turning point, point. and wrote a turning point. That's awesome. She this goes. Is amazing. It's amazing. Next time I see you, Ryder. Next time I'm in LA, I'll bring these with me. This is a, yeah, I mean, it, it feels fake, right? It, feels it does, like this, and it's like, like no was some up. sort of metafictional project that somebody was doing. And but. these things are in pristine conditions. Like no one has ever opened these up. Um, and what happens is she goes down to the Multnomah Hotel. Yeah, you go, where girl. Her husband has checked in as Captain and Mrs. Rudy Bauman, oh, and that's what Rudy-kins. hurts the most. Because she is Mrs. Rudy Bauman. She has always been Mrs. Rudy it's Bauman. bullshit. That idiot, she says. She goes up to the room, opens the door with the key. It's empty, but the, the sheets are in disarray. There's lipstick marks on everything. Empty glasses of whiskey with lipstick marks on them. The room smells of sex. She goes back down to the hotel front desk where the, the guy at the front desk surely thinks she's insane and she says tell me who the woman was and he doesn't know he just thinks it was his wife but that's when things start to come together for christy bauman that all is not what it seems to be in the house and from that point forward she never again refers to rudikins as rudikins because he has killed that kindness inside of her Mm -hmm. as she writes wow she he is now always just rudy and she, but they stay together? Well, for a time, because she's pregnant. Oh, God. She's seven months pregnant when this happens. Uh. And so she keeps her diary every single day until the birth of her son. And uh, then the, her son is born. And then she doesn't... And it, she's in a terrible, horrible depression this entire time. Like, it's of so course. obvious and so painful. Um. I mean, she doesn't have any more entries. And I'm like, oh my God, she just stopped writing in her diary. And then there's one last entry. And so so she had written every single day in her diary. As, as I'm showing the photos of it. It's just every single day. And then from the birth of her son, nothing else, not a single day. And then towards the very end of the diary, she puts in one last mention. It is in September of 1954. Where she says, I'm sorry I haven't written in this diary for so long. I feel somehow tonight I'm pulling myself back together after all that has happened this past spring and summer. Mm. But then she never writes again. That's amazing. Sounds like your next book. Have you done any research? Of course I've done some research. How dare you, writers? So I, I, Nicole and I bought all of the diaries. I bought half and she bought half. And Nicole found photos of this woman. I was worried that after that last diary entry that there'd been murder-suicide. But I, in fact, found um, her son, mm-hmm. who is alive. And I sent him a message online. Um, I won't say his name. Um, but I haven't heard back from him. And so I contacted the... Uh, antique store and I said you know was this a relative and they said it's just someone who had the stuff in their house huh yeah yeah Yeah, I mean like oh cool 
and so it's all this stuff. It's it's an amazing story, and it's also a great catalog because they go to the movies a lot. So <laughs> you get to find out every single movie that they saw and the movies that were playing at the base. But the the Christmas cards, she really wanted to be a tap dancer, and so her husband gets her a Victorola record player so she can practice tap dancing at home. Wow. Oh, I know. It's all in these little books. If only he wasn't a dirty cheater. Yeah, but then I also had to go do a deep dive on all the cases that he was working on in Portland as the chief detective, and that was fascinating. <laughs> wow. Todd, this really sounds like your next big project, no? I know. You should write a book based on this. Call it Griffin and Sabine 2. The <laughs> <laughs> so wow. anyway, uh, that, that should be my bookshelf revisit. Uh, yeah, that is it. Yeah. <laughs> no, Maybe that's it. it. That's, that's it. That's your it. Bookshelf <laughs> yeah, that but that's I had a bunch of weird experiences on the road. Um, but that one is the one that was the most uh, profoundly weird. <laughs> by far. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, it was super neat. So uh, what have you guys been revisiting on your bookshelves? What have you guys been reading? Wow. Uh, well, mine is really short, so I'll just... Yeah, you more, go. Mine's short and simple, so I'll go. And I, I can't remember if we've already talked about this gentleman, but um, my... Um, my son is finally old enough for Shel Silverstein. Oh. And I thought I, I didn't. I, I thought we'd wait till he was like four or five or something. But man, he already loves it. And so we've been reading Where the Sidewalk Ends. And I have not looked at this book since I was a kid. Basically. Oh my god, and it's the best. It is the it's best. It's so good, and um, it's so good because it's so weird. Yeah. yeah. Super Dark. weird. And it's just crazy to watch how it works on my kid's brain in a way that other kids' books don't. Um, you know, he's he's still, like, uh, we don't read Dr. Seuss, right? Because Dr. Seuss, frankly, is just too long. <laughs> like, Cat in the Hat is really long. Right. And it's really repetitive. <laughs> and I get bored sitting there having to say these, and it's it's like work. So I think, I think, I think Dr. Seuss is better for when he's reading, because, like, reading them to yourself is more fun. I don't know. That's my theory so far. But, um... But looking at, like, Shel Silverstein is perfect. I say, like, you know, do you want to read poems? And he gets all excited, and we get on the couch, because there's always, you know, there's the pictures, which are so weird and cool, and he likes to look at the pictures. And then the, the poems are, um, they, they just turn on concepts that that kids' books usually don't. Right. Um, and I remembered that when I was a kid, my parents would skip some of them because they thought they were too dark. Like, he has one, not, I don't think it's in this book, but he has one, like, someone ate the baby. And, you know, he has, like, kind of disturbing stuff. And, like, but what's interesting is that my my son loves the weir the weirdest ones. Like, when I read him the sort of, like, whimsical, silly ones, like, the dirtiest man on earth or whatever, it's like, okay. Uh, and he kind of likes the way it sounds or he'll smile a little bit at the picture. But when I read, like, the one where there's this little girl who eats a whale. Yeah. And it takes her 98 years or whatever, or 89 <laughs> years. And my, it, what's so weird, like, you know, my son's all into whales and, and creatures and sea life, especially right now. So he's like obsessed with this whale. And then when you turn the page and the little girl has become an old lady and the whale has become a pile of bones, like he is so disturbed by that, but not in a like scared way. It's just like, what happened to the little girl? Right. Like, she got old. <laughs> and it's like the concept of age, you don't encounter aging in kids' books like yeah. ever. No. And so this freaks him out. He wants to go back to the first page. And then he's like, she ate the whole whale. So the whale is now those bones. And it's like, it just blows his mind. Um, and then there's one that's like the, it's called the worst. And it's, just a short little one with this really ugly monster and the, the monster is so freaky looking and the, the poem 
so the, the one page is just the, the picture of this monster is kind of looks like sloth from Goonies. Oh, God, uh, yeah. But with, like, big teeth. And so the worst. When singing songs of scariness, of bloodiness and hairiness, I feel obligated at this moment to remind you of the most ferocious beast of all. 3,000 pounds and nine feet tall. The glurky, slurpy, sclack... Wait, the glurpy, sclurk... Wow. The glurpy, slurpy, skakagagraw. <laughs> Who's standing right behind you? My son makes me repeat this like 10 times. He just thinks it's the greatest <laughs> poem ever. And, and he's obviously terrified right. by it. He looks, but but I won't let him be scared of it. So, cause we just talk and I'm always like, look at his funny teeth. He's supposed to be scary. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And then we'll go to another poem. And then he's like, I want to see the slurpy, slurpy sky girl. And you're like, yeah, okay, okay. And he keeps wanting to go back to it. Um. And it's like, he's clearly disturbed by it. And he has to keep sort of like revisiting the poem to make it okay. And you realize like, that's what Shel Silverstein does. Cause his poems end on weird notes. Like there's one about like, Two people like they—they're flying in a shoe and they just disappear. Right, and it's like mm-hmm. we never know what happened to them. So they're unsettling in ways that kids' books typically are not, and that's what he's going to remember. That's why I remember them. I still um, remember so. uh, Sylvia refuses to take the garbage out or whatever it is. Like all—I all, mean, mm-hmm. I remember reading all of them. I have all the books yeah. still. Oh yeah. And, you know, he and was an amazing songwriter on top of everything else. Right. Well, that's the other thing. I ran into – there's one poem in here called The Unicorn. And as I was reading it aloud, I'm like, there's a melody going on in my head. And apparently he wrote – it was converted into a song that was a huge hit in the 70s, uh, like a kid's song about the unicorn not making it on Noah's Ark. It's great. And he, it's like he, wrote, um, ratchin, ratchin, he wrote on the cover of the Rolling Stone, that uh, the mm-hmm. Dr. Hook song, and uh, Sylvia's Mother – Sylvia's mother said, everybody now, the next three, go listen to the story songs episode. (laughs) One thing I love, though, about uh, what you're saying about that monster poem writer is, like, I mean, I'm deep in, like, Halloween land right now with, you know, doing all this. I'm doing improvised horror movies at our theater, which is so fun. Couldn't be more fun. Um, But, like you're getting to see your kid like fall in love with horror like the idea of like Mm -hmm. i hate this i hate this more than anything and i'm terrified of it but i can't stop going back to that i mean that's what an interesting like psychological moment to see well we're 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 doing a kind of weird experiment because it's it's the, the, I love horror films, but I was terrified of them as a kid mm-hmm. yeah, and I too. also was not allowed to watch them as a right. kid. Yep. Whereas Alex, my wife, grew up in a house where she watched Alien at the age of five and <laughs> oh, remembers God. it and always grew up with horror films. Her dad intentionally never like held her back from watching the horror films that he was watching and she loves them and was never scared by them Mm -hmm. or enjoyed being scared by them but always knew that they were just movies and was Mm -hmm. never like kept up at night so we're taking that tactic with indie because it's always been a debate between us like you know what would be a better way to go and it's totally working he's never scared by movies Hmm. and it was so funny we were watching the animated um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Which is horrifying. Ago. It's a horrifying Which has horrifying. Ho- you think? <laughs> yeah. but, so we turn it on and the abominable, the abominable snowman starts coming and, you know, the music goes... And we're watching it with my parents who were visiting for the holidays and sure enough, like, we're watching it and we're not reacting. We're not saying this is scary. But my mom goes, I don't know about this. And is like looking at Indy like, is he going to be okay? And we look at her, we're like, stop. And sure yeah. enough, she stopped and he didn't 
not get freaked out. And I realized like, okay, my mom programmed me to right. be scared of, yeah. of movies when I was a kid. And I think it's really... You're I like that character in fear. Mindhunter who was programmed to be a serial killer by his mother. I haven't seen it, but I think that I think that we do like you know how as a group when you're watching something with your family, how you react to it really informs how your kid yeah. is going to uh, respond to it. Because like I remember, you know, and I think that's an important exercise for like develop developing humor. You know, because mm-hmm. like when I think about things that I think are funny, they're mostly what I remember laughing like watching movies with my parents yeah. and like what they laughed at. So it was like, even when I didn't quite get it, I would laugh. And I think it's the same thing with fear. It's like, well, you know what to be scared of mostly by, you know, by what your parents let you know or indicate you shouldn't watch right. or this is bad for you. Uh, so we're kind of saying everything goes. Hmm. And so far, like he's not scared of anything, which is great. He, he's intrigued and it clearly like rubs his brain a certain way, but he wants to go back and visit it and he doesn't talk about it in terms of like, this is scary. I don't want to watch that. He says, like, what I about watch the, it again. What about the bullying message in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? It's intense. Yeah. I mean, it's like... <laughs> it's, it's, it's profound. Oh, my God. It's, and, it, yeah, it, it works on so many levels. I mean, the whole idea of these misfits and, like, the mm-hmm. island of misfit toys. And it's like, yeah, because Rudolph isn't, like, man enough and, like, right. he doesn't play with it. It's great. And it, he's like, totally... given sort of a, a quasi-feminine voice. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's a very strange and it, Well, yeah, cartoon. and he's got the weird nose, right? Like, he's yeah. born with this, like, deformity that then becomes his great strength. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I don't it's, know. It's, it's the best, Todd. I don't know why you're so disturbed by this movie. It's fantastic. Because when elf, I was a kid, the abominable snowman scared yeah, the, the crap out of me. Yeah, the abominable snowman scared the crap out of me. But then the elf who wants to secretly be a dentist. Yeah. It's yes, so Herbie. Herbie wants to be a dentist. Yeah. It's great. It's a great little movie. Well, it's. And then Herbie stands under the abominable snowman and he looks. He's like, he's right under the abominable snowman's junk. And there's that one scene. But to get back to Herbie. To get back to Herbie for a second, like. You know, this is something that um, I've talked about a lot with my friends as Harry Potter becomes, you know, just so becomes. It is so canonical and, like, every kid likes it. But, like, so much right. British, like, children's literature, it's all about, like, your personality is, or your bloodline is your destiny. You know? Right. like So, like, right. you are this way. You've been sorted into this house. So you are brave or you are evil or whatever. And... And Hunger Games is like that, too, even though it's more about society. But, like, Herbie the Elf is just all about being, like, I was born into this thing and it feels so wrong and I want to choose this (laughs) other life. And, like, what a great, lovely children's story. We don't have enough of those. And it turns out that the Abominable Snowman really just needs some periodontal work. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's also a story about, about flossing. When you really look at it, you know, it's about getting in there and flossing. Okay, we've gone off track, so I'm going to do my <laughs> Yukon Cornelius. Remember him? Who are you? Who am I? The name's Yukon Cornelius, the greatest prospector in the North. Fuck Yukon Cornelius. Yukon. He's always like licking his, he, he throws yeah. his pickaxe and then he like licks it furiously. Nothing. It's a yeah. really weird Weird Yukon animation Cornelius stuff. is is a deeply troubled Yukon Cornelius. character. Like, not not that's the thing that's not safe for children is Yukon Cornelius. Yukon uh, Cornelius, axe. guys, Come it on, takes man. all kinds. He's cool. Uh, <laughs> all right. I've not been to the Yukon. I didn't see one like that guy. So I have been reading slowly this book that I just picked up in Barnes and Noble one day. Um, 
called Disrupted, My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble by Dan Lyons. And it's it's this little, it's like a light memoir about this journalist who worked at Time or Newsweek or one of those magazines, uh, got laid off, and then started working at a startup. And it's basically just, <laughs> I'm sure there's people who work at this startup and probably hate this book more than anything uh who listen to our podcast (laughs) but it's a scathing scathing review of startup culture which has started to like fascinate me beyond that which i can describe like what is it like is it like open desk or open office policies like where it's all open air oh my god that's nothing chairs oh it's way way deeper than that it's like so this guy's like in his 50s and he or maybe his late 40s and well first of all the the entire reason that he could write this book is this startup was so incompetent they gave him a non-disclosure agreement and he just intentionally never signed it that's how you get around those you can't do this and he was like i never signed it you're so incompetent are they um, in um, Are they in Silicon Valley? Like they're in California? No, they're in Boston. Okay. So okay. this it's uh, I won't say the name of the company because I don't want to piss off my book. Yeah. Okay, you're right. It's yeah. HubSpot. It's HubSpot, which okay. is just this like random marketing content generator um, kind of pyramid scheme type thing. <laughs> you know, like I mean, right. one of the big questions with a lot of these companies is like what are they exactly? Like right. what are they selling? Right. What are they doing? But at, you know, like it's stories like he goes in and there's some person who like takes him around the office and he like chats with him and this guy has like he graduated like 6 months ago um from college and he like wanders around and the whole time the author is like oh this kid like he doesn't know anything he's so like sloppy disorganized and then it turns out this kid's his boss oh god um, yeah so it like, sounds it's so much like silicon valley the tv show it yes, also sounds yes. like the short story orientation by daniel or Rosco, mm-hmm. which is one of the great short stories of all time um oh. but it's it's really fascinating because it it does go deep into like you know, this guy is a curmudgeon and he's a Luddite and he's like all the people that I live and work with <laughs> over here in my life in Connecticut. So like, I'm totally on his side, but the people who he's working with are essentially like our peers, my peers. Um, and they're the people that are creating the world that we currently, like I have like Amazon dash buttons right next to me right now, you know, like those were created right. by people like this. So right. it's really it's a dark look <laughs> that it's like very it's masochistically enjoyable to me um but it also is is terrifying because it talks about things like you know how these companies are actually financially structured you know like how they are designed for you know the venture capitalists to make a profit but then all the employees like lose all their money and it's it's really dark so i recommend it it's funny and it's horrifying, and it'll make you very and depressed. And what's the title of it again? Disrupted. Disrupted. Yeah, but that sounds like a dark dystopian future. Yeah, or present, present, or present. It sort of reminds me of. I have a lot of friends that work at newspapers, mm-hmm. and yeah. um, those still exist, huh? That still exist, and they're you know, and they're in their forties or their fifties, and they've been you know merged and merged and merged and merged, and now they're owned by media companies, and. Instead of having editors now, they have content managers, which are right. you know twenty-four what? year olds that are coming in and telling you know 
Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, hey, your last article only had an average yeah. read time online of yep. 47 seconds. So now you've lost an inch on your next article. Yeah. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is this is not stuff that is surprising in the journalism world. It's just surprising when, when you hear about it in the real world. Right, but they rate it by... By, by reading read time. time. By how many, yeah. yeah. And it's just about clicks and clicks exactly. on ads on ads. the side. Oh my yeah. God. So terrifying. When, when you see, oftentimes now, when you're looking at an article on, um, you know, something that isn't the New York Times necessarily, because I think the New York Times online really gets it right. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have a, like a small local newspaper where you live, it's always going to be, you're going to be scrolling through the article and midway through the article, you're going to get that band of ads that yep. takes 10 seconds to scroll through yep. which creates an artificial longer amount of time that you're reading the articles and so you know they're they're gearing they're trying to gear the journalist to write towards x amount of read time online mm -hmm. and you know they'll get points towards that like oh you you your last five articles have only generated 50 total points out of a possible 68 or whatever and so it's you know, they're, they're essentially money-balling journalism mm -hmm. now. Um, and so it's not so different than what you're talking about, just with the with these startup type things. Yeah, I mean, it's all one, it's all one ecosystem, essentially. So, you know, HubSpot is all about creating marketing content, but it's still like that content manager idea. It's like, how are we measuring it? What are the click-through rates? You know, how many how many leads can we generate? How many people can we blast with this information? So it's it's hard to read because it feels like we've walked so far into this world that there's no coming back. I mean, there's definitely no, no coming back, but it's hard to imagine what's the next step beyond that. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, part of it is that we get used to things online for free. And, you know, just the three of us as general consumers, we give this podcast out for free, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but with these big corporations, they need to make money and they got to figure out how to make that money. And that money is we need to have eyes on this for three minutes so that we can run X number of ads on that thing. And I mean, as consumers of literature and knowledge and things like that, we should want these people to make money. You know, we mm -hmm. should want people to be able to pay their journalists or their writers or their, their creative people some living wage but which then is the why we're asking us, you our listeners to fund <laughs> literary disco yeah. which is why i'm saying which gangster is nation is currently saying. ranked eighty-five thousand on kindle i need it to be in the top 10 yeah. tonight buy todd's book buy todd's book yeah buy let's gangster start a patreon nation. page or whatever for, yeah. for literary disco but it, i mean it's it's that startup mentality i i think it it feels weird to us because we're in that moment of either adapt or you die. You know, we're in a Lewis Leakey period of time, anthropologically speaking, where either you're living in the trees or you're walking on your feet. Um, and it's hard to change. It's hard to accept change. That's my philosophical statement for the day. I got Lewis fucking Leakey into this podcast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and with that, we will end today's episode of Literary Disco. 